You know that time when you're thinking, oh, that person that walked by just crop dusted me, or oh, that person really needs to brush their teeth, or oh my goodness, that person needs to work on their personal hygiene. And then you realize through a set of circumstances that make it entirely too obvious and unignorable that actually the smell is coming from you. Yeah, that happened to me today. Apparently 10,000 kilometers of sweating in my motorcycle jacket hasn't left it with the most wonderful of odors. Oh, on a more serious note, we're here to tell a story. The story of when I destroyed a policeman's motorcycle in Panama. We're on a mission from God. Oh my God! Okay, it's happening! Alright, Buster, what do you do? Really, the story begins that morning, before I had even entered Panama, when I was still sipping my coffee slowly on a mountain overlooking a small town in southern Costa Rica. I had chosen an expensive, out-of-my-budget, but perfectly placed and perfectly beautiful and perfectly relaxing place on top of a mountain just north of the border between Costa Rica and Panama. I like to be as close to the borders as possible because I like to cross as early as possible and get it over with and then continue on with my life, my day, my travels, make it to wherever I'm trying to go, and make sure I leave plenty of time for unknowns like immensely long lines or unforeseen needs for certain paperwork I don't have or officials not being in their offices, anything and everything that can and will happen at a border crossing. So. Always stay as close as you can to the border the night before and cross the next morning. That was my game plan. That was the plan I had used to cross the half a dozen other borders I'd crossed that month in Central America. So, sipping my coffee, overlooking a beautiful town, high up in the mountain where it's almost cold even though we're in Costa Rica, with clouds drifting over the plains in front of me, and with each sip of my coffee disappeared another excuse to keep myself there, procrastinating, not wanting to actually go to the border. Finally, finished my coffee, I packed all my bags, they kicked me out of my hotel room at a rather early checkout time if you ask me, and I started riding towards the border. Now, I don't know if it's the borders in general or just the Honduras border when I was leaving Honduras and entering Honduras on this trip that has given me just a sickening and dead and numbing feeling on border crossing days. I woke up that morning before I was sipping my coffee, before I was overlooking the beautiful plains below the mountain, just feeling numb and empty and without appetite and just no motivation to even get out of my bed, put my pants on and get on the motorcycle. Those are what border crossing days have turned into. Just this dread of the process that it's going to be and the awkward, anxiety-inducing situations where there's no parking, there's no road. Oftentimes you're riding against traffic and then slipping in with the line of semis to try to avoid the other semi coming the other way, or you're riding between two rows of semis with very much no room for a motorcycle to be riding through between them. And then you have people yelling at you who are unofficial, who are asking you for money, who are telling you what you need to do, who are trying to gesture to you, who are trying to get in front of your motorcycle. And then you have actually officials who look practically the same as the other people, except slightly more dead look in their eyes, who are actually yelling at you officially and who have the right to yell at you. But then you accidentally ignore the right person. And it's, oh, it's just a stressful, stressful day, no matter how you put it. So I pack up my motorcycle with that numb, dead feeling in the bottom of my stomach, and I head towards the Costa Rican-Panamanian border. We get to the border, and lo and behold, it turns out the Panama-Costa Rican border is far more tranquilo, far more tranquil, far more chill than any of the other borders that I've crossed so far, other than the US-Mexico one, which I accidentally just rode directly across without actually stopping for immigration because I already have my paperwork for my bike, so... 
Yeah, that's a different story though. So the first sign of whether it's going to be a good, a chill border crossing or not is five kilometers before you actually reach the border, does the line of stopped, parked, camped out semis begin? If it does, you're probably in for a pretty crazy, pretty awful, pretty confusing day with no place for the motorcycle, with no clear sign of where you're supposed to be, having asked directions for eight different times in order to arrive at the same place that you were just told you needed something else before you came to that place, blah, 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 blah. If the train, if the se- if the semi-trucks are there, bad sign. If the semi-trucks aren't there, very good sign. And upon approaching the Costa Rican-Panamanian border, the semi-trucks were not there. And so I found myself riding right up to Migraciones and Aduanas, para salir de Costa Rica in order to leave Costa Rica, managed to park my bike in a nice little spot and walk no more than 30 seconds to a nice shaded immigration window where I was then told I needed to go to a different window, where I was then told I needed to go to a different window, where I was then told I needed to go to a different window, where I was then told I needed to go to a different window. And no, your track is not skipping. No, your phone is not skipping. That is the reality of a border crossing, especially when you're bringing a motorcycle or a vehicle across borders. But in record time, just under two hours, and with little to no hassle, and with little to no awkward encounters with people trying to sell you things or people trying to get your money, and with little to no awkward encounters with officials who I didn't have the right paperwork or I skipped a line or whatever it might be, I found myself entering Panama. Bienvenidos a Panama! I screamed in my motorcycle helmet, so happy, pumping my music up, dancing with my hands and my hips on my bike, enjoying the feeling of the air blowing through my vests, blowing through my jacket, finally cooling the wet dog that I was after an hour and a half of standing in the sun and standing in the shade, doesn't matter, it's equally hot. I was happy. I was so thrilled to have crossed my final Central American border, other than leaving Panama, if that, cro- if that counts. To be in Panama, which I was told would be beautiful, which signified the beginning of the biggest hurdle of my trip yet, which is getting my motorcycle from Panama to Colombia and then continuing the journey. It was a big, symbolic moment. And so, I was happy. I was smiling, my sweat was cooling and evaporating, and therefore my body felt wonderful. I was hydrating because I had taken a drink right before I started riding again. I was legally in Panama, legally out of Costa Rica, and the road was open before me. It was a beautiful day, no rain, clouds here and there, but a beautiful day nonetheless. And I was riding my motorcycle, free and happy. Now, I'm at about 9,990 kilometers at this point, about crossing the Panamanian border. I have about 9,990 kilometers of riding experience in Central America and then a little bit in the States. So that's how long I've been traveling on the motorcycle, and I've been keeping about the same exact speed and habits of riding the entire way, which is I don't really pay attention to the velocity signs or the speed limit signs. I merely go slightly faster than whatever the pervading speed of the traffic is. So if semis are going 60, I go 65. If traffic's going 70, I go 75. I go 74. I go 73. Whatever it takes to slowly be passing traffic, looking for that open area, that bubble, as I like to call it, to put myself and my motorcycle to then linger between two chunks of traffic and feel much more safe. So I did what I'd been doing for 9,991 kilometers, which is start to slightly pass traffic, not speed by them, not be going 100 kilometers per hour when everyone's going 60. But if everyone's going 70, I'm going 75. If everyone's going 60, I'm going 65. That's just how I ride. I didn't think anything of it. And lo and behold, within 10 kilometers of crossing into Panama, a police officer jumps out from underneath a tree, steps into the road, raises his hand quite aggressively, and stands with a posture that demands obedience and motions for me to pull over to the side of the road. I could almost feel his eyes, feel his 
confidence, feel his demanding tone in his posture as he gestured for me to pull over. Now, I've been pulled over on motorcycles before back in the States, and I have no problem whatsoever pulling over because most of the time I am speeding just because, because most of the time I actually am speeding just by a little bit, but still I understand. So I stop, no problem. I pull over on the side of the road, downshift and brake, not too aggressively, but just enough where I can pull off within a reasonable distance of where he originally jumped out from under his shaded little hiding spot on the tree. I take my helmet off, I take my gloves off, I take the key out of the ignition just to make sure it's clear I'm not trying to run, and I wait for him. And he saunters up real slow, taking his time, walking like that walk when you're coming back from the bathroom after a good old Thanksgiving dinner. No rush whatsoever, just heading to the couch, but you're confident, and you're stalking, and you're sauntering or strutting, whatever the term is. Here comes the officer that shall remain unnamed. And so it is that I find myself getting my first speeding ticket in Panama. Turns out I was going 78 kilometers in a 60 kilometer hour per zone that he informed me had just begun right before his tree, right before his hiding spot, and therefore really was a little bit questionable on whether I should have been pulled over or not. But as I would learn later that night as I told this story to my hotel caretakers, they said, they rolled their eyes and said that in Panama there are police officers every 10 to 20 feet waiting to give a ticket and they don't hesitate they don't talk they just pull you over and start writing the ticket immediately i don't know what it is maybe it's a a police force issue with quotas i don't know what it is culturally i don't know but apparently they're quite aggressive and they will give you tickets and the next 400 miles of panama riding that i did after this day after this incident i saw dozens and dozens and dozens of police officers both on motorcycles and in cars always perched, always with their speed guns ready, looking for their next victim, their next prey. And this is quite unique in my experience in Central America. I rode all through Central America speeding the entire way, speeding according to what the velocity actually is. So going 70 or 80 in a 60 or going 100 in an 80, etc. And not a single person ever stopped me. And I was not alone. Everyone else was going the same speed. So it was a little ridiculous getting pulled over, going 78 in a quote-unquote 60 when it was 80 right before he stopped me. But no no problem, just a ticket. The guy was very nice. The officer was very nice. He actually seemed very, very human and very kind and uh, patient and not overbearing or assertive with his power in a wrong way at all. And so I did not have a problem getting my first ticket of the 10,000 kilometers because honestly, I felt like I'd almost deserved a ticket at this point because I'd gone so long scot-free. So he walks up to my bike. He explains that he's pulled me over for going too fast, that he's going to give me a ticket. And he asks me to pull my bike around, go against traffic briefly, and then pull up next to his bike so we can fill out the paperwork. As I make a very awkward U-turn on the side of the highway and then skirt past oncoming traffic to get next to his bike, I pull over and he motions for me to park right next to him and behind him so that our bikes are pretty close, but not too close. As I pull over, I pop my helmet off again, kick the kickstand down and lean the bike, and I take a small mental note that I'm, I'm on a bit of an incline and therefore my bike is barely leaning at all. It's almost erect completely, and therefore the shift of my body weight on the bike moves the center spring, the center shock on the bike, and therefore changes whether the bike is leaning or erect. I make a small mental note, but I think I've got both feet on the ground, I've been in this situation hundreds of times, and there shouldn't be a problem. And I tuck it away in the back of my mind and forget. As it turns out, the officer who shall remain unnamed is incredibly kind and incredibly open, and we start to talk. We talk about motorcycles, we talk about life, we talk about love, we talk about family. 
We even start talking about the war in Ukraine and the U.S.'s stance on the war in Ukraine and what they should and shouldn't do and what superpowers in the world should and shouldn't do. We carried on a, a good, deep, lively conversation with laughing, with deep th thoughts, with real conversation for over an, a half an hour as he filled out the paperwork for my ticket. By the end, I honestly felt like we were friends. And so it is I found myself still straddling my bike, still keeping it on that precarious angle, being given my ticket, being told how to pay it, when to pay it, and then told that I was ready to go, that I was free to go. So I put the key in the ignition. I put my gloves on top of the key. I put my glasses on top of my gloves on top of the key. I put my helmet on the, on the mirror to get it ready to put on. And then I started looking for my headphones and I couldn't find my headphones. And I could remember when he first pulled me over, I'd pulled the headphones out and not knowing whether I was going to be let go right away because I was so cool on my motorcycle or whether he was gonna actually give me a ticket, I didn't put the headphones away inside their case inside my pocket because that's a horrible ordeal. I set them on my cargo net behind me in order that they would just sit there out of the way while we took care of business. And now as I'm searching every pocket, as I'm searching every crevice for the headphones, I'm thinking, did I leave them on the back of the cargo net when he asked me to pull back around and park next to him? He asked me what's the matter and what I'm looking for, and I tell him that I'd lost my headphones, and so we both start searching. I'm searching every pocket again. I'm searching my pockets in my pants. I'm searching pockets, all the pockets in my jacket. I'm searching in the folds of my jacket. I'm searching up near the keys and the gloves. He starts looking all over the ground, and then I remember that I had set them on the back of the cargo net on the bike. And so I turn around over my left shoulder and start looking through the cargo net and I still can't find them. So then I turn back around, check the pockets again. And then after a final last ditch effort through the pockets, I decide to check the cargo net one more time for these headphones. And so I turn as I already have several times and start checking the cargo net. But this time to be more comfortable for my more elongated search, I lifted my left leg slightly off the ground just so the toe was touching rather than my full flat foot. And that's when the bike started to tip over. Now, those of you who've ridden a very heavy motorcycle know the feeling when you've lost control of it and it is tipping, it is falling. It's not a tragic, fast action over in a second type of thing. It's a painfully slow process that you can feel in all of your body as the bike starts to lose its balance and then starts a fall you really cannot stop unless you're Hulk Hogan himself. Now that's not entirely true. If you are planted on the ground or if you are prepared, sometimes you can stop the bike from tipping. But in this instance, I was twisted around behind me, left foot off the ground, completely unprepared, completely relaxed. And so by the time I realized what was happening, it was too late. The next three instances, the next three moments, the next three tiny little pieces of time took place over the course of what seemed like minutes. Slow motion, unendingly painful three instances. The first instance was the realization that I was losing the bike and that the bike was going down. All I felt at that time was slight embarrassment thinking, this is embarrassing, I'm gonna have dropped my bike next to this police officer, not a huge deal, but definitely embarrassing. But I've done this before. My bike has a metal cage around it. It should be totally fine. Maybe I'll drop my helmet. Maybe I'll have dropped my phone, whatever it might be, but it won't be the end of the day. While thinking that, I leap free of the falling motorcycle so that I don't get caught with it slash thrown off of it. And as I'm jumping free, I realize, oh, fuck me. My bike is so close to his bike that the front tire of my bike is going to hit the rear tire of his bike. And this is when instance two takes place. 
Instance two is an even slower, even longer, drawn-out process where I'm thinking, what the heck do I do when I knock over a policeman's motorcycle? Well, that still is not the worst thing. Motorcycles drop all the time. It's a common thing that happens when you ride. Eventually, you're going to drop your motorcycle, or at least most people are. And it's not exactly the most beautiful of motorcycles that he has. It probably has been through a lot, and it has a little cage in the front too. Not quite as durable as mine, but it should be fine. And that's when instance three starts happening. Now mind you, not more than a couple of milliseconds has taken place, maybe one or two seconds in total. And so instance three starts what should have been the sound of the policeman's motorcycle hitting the cement just like mine had an instant before, instead was met with the policeman's motorcycle falling through dead open air over the edge of the precipitous decline of the ditch right next to where we are parked, and then the most disgustingly sickeningly awful sound and vision and sight of the policeman's motorcycle rolling and crashing end over end down the unreasonably rocky slope that we had just parked next to, finally coming to rest at the bottom with all of his things from the back of his motorcycle, from his panniers, scattered this way and that, with his fairings completely destroyed, with his windshield completely destroyed, with the mechanisms he uses to turn on his police lights mangled and thrown out of place, with his clutch lever and his mirror broken off, and with one of his rear panniers completely destroyed. The officer and I both stood there for a long moment, several moments, completely unable to accept to believe what had just taken place in a matter of moments. Not four seconds before, we had been laughing, we had been chatting, we had been looking for my headphones. And now, as the officer said, Oh, Jeremias, ahora estamos en problemas. Now we are in trouble. We are in real trouble. I don't think I will ever forget climbing down into that ditch with the police officer in the most awkward situation ever where we were friends a moment before, but now I've destroyed his motorcycle, destroyed state property of the state of Panama. My bike is totally fine, still up on the curb. Meanwhile, his things are everywhere. His motorcycle that he's probably ridden for five, six years on this duty as a police officer on this street is destroyed, all due to a gringo who had just entered the country and was smiling and was laughing and was on this grand romantic journey from California to Argentina. We are picking up all of his pieces of his bike, all of the things that had flown out of his pannier, all the things that had flown out of his little metal case that was strapped to the back of his bike with his papers and his pens and his lights and his official documents. I don't think I will ever forget the moments of trying to get his bike back up the slope together, working together, and yet awkwardly me being the one that is at fault for all of this happening. I don't think I will ever forget the three hours we spent sitting on the pavement, walking around his bike and talking through what the heck we were going to do. Because as he explained to me, we had to make a decision. There were only two options. One, we start a formal process. We start an official investigation. We report this to his precincts, to the state, to the police of Panama in order to work through all the proper channels. But two things happened with that. One, he was up for review for a promotion this December and the 12 months prior to your review for a promotion, you must have a spick and span, spit, shine free, cleansed, perfect, holy record in order to be considered for promotion. And this event, even though it was my fault, 
would be a blotch, would be a splotch, would be a black mark on his otherwise perfect record. And two, as he explained to me, if we reported it, he would no longer be a part of the process. It would go into the hands of other police officers in order that there be no bias. They would lock my bike inside of a compound for 10 days, after which then we would have to wait another 15 days for the court to decide my culpability, for the court to decide my penalty. During this time, I would have to stay in the tiny town of David in Panama. I would have to stay near the precinct. I would have to stay without my motorcycle. So I have to pay for a place to live, food, all this stuff, transportation. I also have to pay the fine to keep my bike there. I also have to pay then the fines that the court would then put on me. And that is if everything goes perfectly. So not only would I probably be delayed a month, I'd have to pay several hundred dollars just to live for a month there, and that's not counting whatever fines the state decides to put on me. And so the only option that we could have come to that seemed even reasonably reasonable would, was that the officer would pray to God above, call the mechanic, the official mechanic of his precinct, and beg him to let him pay for the repairs of the motorcycle and to fix it under the table, to fix it off the record, to fix it without any official paperwork. And the only way that would be possible is if the officer had the money right then and there to be able to fix the bike right then and there, to be able to give the money to the mechanic, to be able to have already ordered the parts, to be able to make sure that there was no barricade, no barrier whatsoever between the mechanic's ability and willingness to somewhat break the law and the mechanic's choice to instead decide to file a formal process and have the state pay for it, which would begin the entire process of locking my bike away and keeping me in David until the court would decide my, my culpability. I don't think I will ever forget huddling on the side of the road next to my duffel bag, opening up my laptop case, pulling out all my official paperwork, and then going through the paperwork until I found the little baggie with my emergency cash counting out my emergency cash and informing the officer that I could give him this amount that was in my hand right now and if he waited I could go to an ATM and give him up to 200 more because I had a daily limit of 250 that I was able to take out. We decided that that would be the right course of action that I needed to take out another 200 from the ATM. One, in order to be able to actually pay for my hotel that night and two, also to beef up the bribe a little bit because honestly I wanted to do anything and everything I could to get out of any official process that one would be unknown completely given that it would be in the hands of other people I don't know and two would cost me so much time and so much money to just sit on my hands on my thumbs twiddling my thumbs until the court gave me my motorcycle back hopefully and so I found myself back at the border the only place where there was a ATM within 20 or 30 miles of where this incident happened back at the border taking money out sick to my stomach, unable to think, unable to close my eyes without seeing the bike tumbling down that slope and crashing and pieces flying everywhere and his things flying everywhere. Getting back on my motorcycle, heading back to the officer, handing him the largest wad of cash I'd touched since the start of this trip, saying a small prayer, not sure whether I should smile, say goodbye, shake his hand, or just tell him I never want to see him again getting on my motorcycle, driving the last hour in numb silence without any music on, without any podcast on, without really even seeing the road in front of me, just numb in the state of shock. 
as I prayed that the mechanic would do it all unofficially, that the policeman would not change his mind, that there wouldn't be a knock on my door, that there wouldn't be a search for the gringo who broke the policeman's motorcycle, found my hotel, found my room, and just sat in numb silence in my room, watching YouTube, watching TV, trying to get over this awful feeling that I had done something absolutely awful. It took me several days to get over the sickening, numb feeling in my stomach every time I imagined what had happened, every time I thought about the outrageous occurrence that took place, that the fact that everything changed in just a few tiny moments. It took me several days to realize I actually came out on top, I think, in this instance. The, the worst case scenario would have been much, much, much worse. The best case scenario probably is that a few hundred dollars of my money went towards keeping me out of an official process and helping this man not have a blotch on his record so that he could be up for promotion this December. Right before we left, the officer asked for my contact information in case anything changed and he needed to contact me. I gave him my number, went inside of my bed all night, numb, and the next morning, I saw a text from him. Everything was going to be okay. He had already started to find the pieces he needed to order. The mechanic said he would do things under the table. And it looks like there would be no blotch on his record, and no need to bring the gringo in, put his, mo motorcycle, in a, put his motorcycle in a compound, and take him to Panamanian court to give him justice for the damage he had done to state property. As it turns out, the officer probably will be one of the people I count as my friends from along this journey. I may never see him again, and I may only send him a message here and there as he requested a picture when I arrive in Patagonia. But I count that experience as one of the most memorable experiences on the trip. And I think as time goes on, it will become a funny story, a memorable story, a sobering story, a story that changes the way that I interact with policemen from now on, making sure I park very far away from them. A story that changes the way that I see disaster in any given moment. A story that changes how I see a dynamic that could have been so much more different. Could have been me in handcuffs being arrested for having hurt his motorcycle, for having hurt state property, and then everyone believing his story and not mine because I'm the stranger in the land. Instead, the story was somebody trying their very best to keep both of us out of trouble, not just himself. Yes, things could have been better if nothing had happened in the first place. Yes, things could have been better had I seen the 60 kilometers per hour sign and slowed down a little bit and never gotten pulled over in the first place. But life happens. Life changes. Life puts things in your path that are awful. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we make terrible mistakes that hurt others around us. The only thing we can do is take responsibility for our actions and find the best possible way of maneuvering out of that situation, leaving everyone in a better state or the best state that they could, even in spite of whatever tragedy took place. And honestly, this story I think is a perfect representation of one of the reasons why I came on this trip, which is to see what kind of person I am, to see what I do when things happen that are unexpected, when things happen that are nasty, when unexpectedly nasty, awful things take place. Who am I and what do I do? Well, I guess it turns out I bribe people to get out of my troubles, but you get the idea. There's a nice lesson in here somewhere. Nice. I regret nothing. The end.